Well, it already feels uh, quite silent in here. Let's see if it stays that way. Larry and I would like to welcome you to IMS and to this retreat. Larry and I have a tradition where we drive together coming out of Cambridge and arriving to Barry. It takes, you know, like an hour and 45 minutes or so, maybe sometimes less. And as we drive out, we're being driven out, actually. Uh, IMS picks us up. And that gives us a chance to check in and talk about the retreat. And inevitably, it seems like it happens every year. I think we're creatures of habit. Uh, but every year we start um, reflecting and talking about um, what a significant uh, place that IMS has had in our life. And we start talking about the retreats or the years that we've been teaching here and um, different staffs and there really is quite a unique history to this place. This place, uh, I'm sure many of you know, uh, place is 20, about 25 years. I think this is the 25th year of its existence. Uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of yogis have come through the center practicing. Many of them continue to practice uh, elsewhere. It really is quite a unique environment and community that we're going to be sharing over the next seven days. Sometimes we take things for granted, and um, it's important not to do that, both not take IMS for granted, but our lives in general. Uh, and just taking a look at what it takes to make a retreat like this happening, to happen, you know, there's a, a tremendous uh, devoted staff, you know, people, maybe 25 or 30 people now that work very hard in, in give us a lot of support, enables us to live, you know, a life that's considerably simpler than our everyday life out there. We also have the support from each other. To me, that's very special, that support. I don't take that for granted. My own practice, and I know in Larry's, we've um, relied at times and, and have certainly received a lot of support from fellow practitioners, you know, people who are practicing doing what we're doing and doing it together. So knowing that we have that kind of support. I think it's especially important, not necessarily, but it's especially important for people who are, are new or reasonably new to the practice or, or to retreats in general. And, and I'd like to ask, um, how many people are new to IMS? and new to um, kind of intensive, silent retreats? Okay. I think John, the manager, I think mentioned that there was maybe about 40 of us. And one thing I'd like to say is now that the schedule has been posted, it gets posted when you guys get in here, uh, so as not to scare you away. Um, (laughs) You're already here. When you go out, you get to study it deeply and profoundly over the next six days because the schedule doesn't change. Sunday schedule is the same as Monday schedule, the same as Tuesday schedule. And uh, sometimes that first sight of the schedule and you start counting up the hours or you count up the sittings, and it can be kind of uh, intimidating uh, to those who are new. And, and I just would like to say, uh, don't be intimidated. If you are, be mindful of it. Um, but there isn't really 
I don't think there's a need to be intimidated by it. You know, lots of, lots of new folks uh, go through here. Everybody has their first retreat. It's true for everybody in this room. Uh, it's often a, a memorable one, um, but it's often a very good and fruitful one. So don't be intimidated by the schedule. And as a community, you know, we're all pretty new to each other, although looking around me, I see a lot of CIMC faces, people who have been practicing in Cambridge. Uh, but many of us are new to each other. Um, and what makes a retreat special, but also what's very important in life in this community, is certain guidelines, guidelines that we live by, um, things that make it smooth, that make it easier that support our practice, help keep us focused. You know, it's a lot of work, retreat, and we, we all need that support. And guidelines, the first guideline I'd like to mention, one of the more important guidelines I feel is, is silence, you know, noble silence, refraining from speaking. It's really an important guideline to, to respect. It's, it's one of the conditions that makes retreat life uh, really unusual, unique. So maintaining the silence throughout the... Uh, I mean, of course, there are interviews, there'll be groups, um, so there'll be time to, to check in and speak with teachers, but outside of that, it's, it's pretty silent. Uh, refraining from reading or writing. And again, this isn't meant to be punitive, this guideline. It's, it's simply a guideline, simply uh, a good way to... Let go of the descriptions, you know, let go of the books, and settle in by yourself. Take a look at your own experience very directly. Everybody in this room has spent uh, many hours, I'm sure, reading books, getting inspired. You probably might not be here if you hadn't read those books. So they're important. But on retreat, it's important to let them go and to really taste the meditation practice yourself, to taste it very directly. There are also, also <clears throat> ethical guidelines. And these ethical guidelines that we'll be living on, um, they're based on non-harm. You know, that principle of not harming yourself and not harming each other. So I think these guidelines are pretty easy to live with on retreat. But they are important to, to take them on. And the first one, of course, is not taking life, which simply means respecting life while you're here. The second guideline is refraining from taking that which doesn't belong to you, you know, not stealing. It's an easy one. Third one is refraining from harmful use of sexual energy. And, of course, that means something different on a non-retreat situation, but on retreat it simply means celibacy while you're here. The fourth guideline, fourth ethical conduct, is refraining from false speech. And that's an easy one because you're silent. So you don't even have to worry about mindfulness of speech. Uh, you can save that for, for the, when you leave here. Fifth one is refraining from taking intoxicants which cloud the mind. And of course, if, if you're on prescribed medication, you need that kind of thing, herbs, medicines, please feel free. In fact, please continue to take them. Um, but, you know, other intoxicants that cloud the mind, of course, refraining from those while you're here.
one helpful approach or kind of an attitude to take in practice that's going to make your retreat a lot easier, actually, a lot easier, is to first of all realize that it does take a kind of adjustment. You know, there's an adjustment period on retreats. Sometimes we adjust very quickly. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer. So the first kind of approach or attitude to take is certainly to begin to see retreat as an opportunity to cultivate patience. We need patience with each other. You know, a lot of us are living together in a building. We can get kind of congested at dinner time. Uh, so being patient with others and all their habits. We have our own habits. It's important to remember that. Um, but also being patient with yourself. It's really critical to nurture patience with yourself, realizing that the wise effort in practice is being both gentle, extremely gentle and kind with yourself, and at the same time being very persevering, you know, continuing on through the ups and downs. It takes a lot of patience to do this practice. Sometimes we arrive at retreats. You know, if we're new, often we arrive with a lot of fears, you know, kind of some anxiety or anticipation. Other times, if we've been on retreats before, we arrive with a lot of expectations. Expectations of ourselves, expectations of the teachers, expectations of how the retreat is going to unfold. And so taking a few moments you know, before we get into it, just to acknowledge if that's true for you. you know, whether you're feeling some fear of anxiety, you know, sometimes the most helpful thing, if you're feeling anxious or afraid, is to simply acknowledge that that's what your experience is. It's the same with expectation. You know, being able to acknowledge that you have an expectation, you know, that you hope that something in particular is going to happen. Retreats always unfold in very unpredictable ways, just like life. But to acknowledge that expectation, to see it, to be mindful of it, can really help begin to let go of it, so that it doesn't become so solid, so that it doesn't drive you through the retreat, so that it doesn't condition your experience here. The Buddha spoke a lot about wise effort in practice. In fact, they say that that's what really what he spoke the most about than anything else is wise effort, because of course, practice does take uh, effort. But the effort that we want to nurture on retreat is very different than the kind of effort that we're often used to uh, exercising. The kind of effort that we want to nurture while we're here over and over again, you want to nurture this quality of relaxation in your practice. And when you feel that you're getting tight or that you're pushing into the next experience, pushing into the next moment, simply see if you can just relax your body, relax your mind. So nurturing this relaxation while at the same time nurturing a continuity of attention. The simplicity of the structure many ways can make it much easier to simply pay attention to what you're doing. And that's all we want to do on this retreat. Wise effort is relaxing and paying attention at the same time. And finally, the healthiest 
I think the healthiest approach to take in practice is really that of a beginner. Some of you are kind of beginners to retreats. And that's a nice place to be. But for those of you who aren't, to really reflect on what it means to be a beginner, really in the truest sense of the word. Once again, a beginner knows that we don't know. And we're here to simply learn, simply to see for ourselves. And to do that seeing, to see clearly, we really have to take a look at our experience in a very fresh way. It's crucial in meditation to to approach each meditation, each moment of your life, each moment of your practice in a very fresh, open way. You don't want practice to become habitual. You don't want to take for granted what's going to happen. But it's really open in a very open-hearted, really willing to let go and willing to see in a very fresh way without those preconceptions, letting go of any notions that we might have of achievement, you know, letting go of any notions that we might have of failure. So easy for us to frame our experience in those terms of achievement and failure. And in practice, we want to begin to soften and let go of those notions, of those ideas, of those evaluations of our experience and to see if we can simply relax and be with whatever's happening. So it's nice to be here. And, uh, I'll turn you over to Larry. So we have this temporary little community thrown together where all of us come from different places. And for seven days, we're each day contributing to building a little culture with guidelines. Routine is simple, as Michael has pointed out. And even though we don't speak, we start to appreciate each other, and sometimes not appreciate each other, get annoyed by one another. Uh, Actually, that's a point that uh, needs to be mentioned. Often, rightfully, the positive sides of this community are emphasized. That is, when you come on a retreat like this, it's an unusual kind of gathering, because we're both alone, And we're also together at the same time. We're very alone, and we're very together. Alone in the sense that you're here to really look into yourself, to come to know yourself. And only you can do it. And that's what each one of us is doing. In that sense, we each have the same job. And yet the fact that each person individually is doing that kind of looking, inner investigation can be strengthening. And so we're together and we're alone, and probably, for the most part, we'll be very supportive and appreciative, but not always. Or as 
uh, Sangha, or a community of people, like-minded people practicing, uh, we still remain human beings. And as the retreat rolls on, we become irritated and uh, patience is required, as was mentioned. Um, but one of the uh, aspects of practicing together that needs to be understood is that is the negative side that's not talked about so much. It's not really negative. It's just what's happening. Put a group of people together, a hundred of us or more, really, we count staff, uh, for seven days, from early in the morning to late at night, who dress differently, who blow their nose differently, who walk differently, have a different pace and uh, take different kinds of food and different amounts of food and look a certain way. And uh, we form all kinds of likes and dislikes. We can't help it. There's nothing wrong with that. If you use all of your reactions that come up as part of practice, it becomes even richer. Because you will have a reaction, of course. In Korean monasteries, they have a, a, a way of putting it. If you want to peel a whole bunch of potatoes, you can take each potato and peel it one at a time. It takes forever. You have a big barrel of potatoes. Or you can throw all the potatoes in the barrel and just shake the barrel, and all the potatoes rub up against each other and they peel each other. You get a lot done fast. So we have seven days of a kind of intense, intensive ripening as people. Retreat centers are places to flower, to learn, and to flower as human beings. That's, as far as I can tell, the only reason these places exist, to help us do that. It's a different kind of learning. Often it's rather new, certainly for those of you who are uh, not only new to IMS, but perhaps new to meditative life, it's uh, quite a re-education. You're being asked to value certain things that never occurred to you, to find out if they really are valuable, and to at least temporarily uh, put in suspension or allow to go into abeyance so many pleasures and satisfactions and uh, comforts of the world. We leave a lot behind to, to come here. And so, bring it all in. You're, we're all full people living here together. And, of course, I'm sure the overall attitude will be one of cooperation and appreciation. It's the nature of why we're here and what we're doing. And yet, um, be sensitive to whatever turns up. It's all part of the practice. It's not something that's interfering. And it can be very, very, a very, very rich part of your stay here. Um, silence is really important. Uh, as you pull up, it's already becoming more quiet. Maybe if you've come from the country, there isn't much contrast. But Michael and I come from Cambridge. Many of you come from far away, even different countries. You've traveled in cars and planes and buses, and probably most of us or many of us from cities. And so there's the beginnings of the outer silence as we bring our luggage in here, and then little by little, if you notice, it's starting to get quieter, and now the silence has officially begun. We try to keep the place clean, reasonably attractive. That's just outer silence. It's a tremendous support 
for the inner silence, and the whole direction of the practice is that. We've all been very concerned with outer worth, what's valuable in the world, and we've been pursuing it, some of us acquiring it rather effectively, some of us not so effectively. But this is about something else. It's about your inner worth that, according to these teachings, we all have. That is, there's a treasury each one of us has. It's like an undiscovered treasure. And meditation is designed to bring us to that. And the silence, beginning with outer silence, starts to become more and more inner as well. One word for enlightenment is sometimes called sometimes called the great silence. So that rule of cooperating, protecting the silence is very, very important. That's why I'm saying it again. Michael emphasized it. It's fragile. And I'm particularly concerned with new people who've come with a friend or a companion, partner. Uh, It's going to be awfully tempting to start sharing the ups and downs of the practice with each other. I would suggest you not do that. Either through notes or sneaking off into the woods. You, the retreat will go by soon. Seven days is, in one sense, they're going to pe- uh, feel like an eternity sometimes. But uh, soon it will be over. And you can, the sharing will be even more rich. What will be more useful and what will strengthen your practice is to look at what comes up. We're not trying to separate couples. We hope you all have very happy friendships and relationships. But here, uh, if you start to uh, neglect that silence, it's amazing how it can spread and affect this, in a sense, invisible bubble that we've created that we all can benefit from if we protect it and keep it quiet silent. Um, In all the Buddhist schools, one way or another, it comes down to the three trainings. There are three trainings that are handled in rather different ways, but they are going in the same direction. The first one Michael mentioned is ethical refinement. if, you're, if your outer life is not in order, the way in which you relate to people and objects, uh, finance and so forth, if that's not in order, you're going to create chaos and trouble, which will then undermine what you may be attempting to do in terms of the contemplative life. Okay, so that part is, for the most part, not much of a problem here. Because by suspending speech, we're all kept out of trouble. Michael and I can still get in trouble, but you two not. And we do sometimes. You come from Brooklyn, you have a big mouth. I have a big mouth. I'm doing my best. But sometimes, you know, the truth comes out. The second training has to do with stabilizing the mind. Call it shamatha, calming, or samadhi. Enabling the mind to be really 
collected, stable, calm, clear, so that it can do what we're here for. We're trying to enable the mind to be fit so that it can actually examine itself. Suggestions like know thyself or self-knowledge all sound good, but the instrument of the knowing is us. We're both the knower and that which we're trying to know. And so uh, we'll begin this evening work on that, although the, the calming and concentrating of the mind is developed every step along the way. Whatever you do mindfully throughout the day is contributing to helping the mind settle down, be stable and useful, helpful for you. Not only stable, but pliable, supple. And that's a very, very useful quality, and that's the second kind of training. And the third is what the center is named for, insight or vipassana or the flowering of wisdom. Our flowering and the flowering of wisdom are the same thing. Wisdom is not left in a book. It's not meant to be the Buddha's words. That's just the menu. Those words, if they are true and real, then they can be experienced inside each one of us. And that's the point. That's why we're here. Those three work together. They reinforce each other. So I think what I'd like to do, no, I know what I'd like to do right now, is for us to begin the samadhi part of practice. But, you know, you've been sitting for a while hearing John's talk and Michael. If you feel like standing, stretching, moving before we, we'll have a sitting begin uh, this evening. We'll start the sitting and as soon as you're ready. So feel free to stand, move, stretch. It's not really a bathroom break, unless it's absolutely essential, but okay. Dharma practice is a, a form of re-education, self-re-education. And one important aspect of that re-education is re-educating the body. Helping the body learn how to sit in a stable and upright way. And so find what is a comfortable position for you. I'm assuming that most, if not all of you, have done some sitting and you've settled on what 
at least for right now, is the most comfortable way for you to sit. A suggestion, as I look around, some of you are sitting cross-legged, but flush right on the cushion. It's cutting off circulation of your thighs. It's uh, not so helpful. If you can edge more towards the outer tip, like the, just a quarter of the cushion is where your, your buttocks would be on, so there's more space under your thighs. Those of you who are sitting with one leg over the other, some form of crossed legs, crossed legs. And bring the head, the neck, and the back into a straight line. The chin is tilted downwards just slightly. Facilitates breathing. Smooth breathing. And the head rests rest lightly on the neck as if it's a, don't do this, but it's as if the balloon, it's like a balloon that's tending to float upwards and slightly forward. And it's very, very helpful if the body is not only upright and stable, but relaxed. And I would suggest you move through the body, bring awareness through the body and the survey of how things are. <clears throat> and start with the face and the head. If you find tension, it's not necessary to try to relax that part of the body that's tense because when it's touched by mindfulness, it tends to relax on its own. See how the eyes are. If your eyes are closed, are they squeezed tightly? Are they shut really tight? Not necessary. Very soft. And the jaw, commonplace where tension accumulates. Perhaps determination, a good quality, but it needs to be balanced and relaxed. The shoulders, are they hunched up, poised for action? Feel the spine and the chest whole torso and arms and hands and the legs and feet and get a sense of the whole body for a few moments. Just not any one piece, any one member of the body, but just the whole body, just a sense of it sitting. If you like, take three or four deep breaths in and out through the nose, just a bit deeper than the way you're breathing right now. And then allow the breathing to just flow naturally.
you'll be hearing lots about this moment, the present moment, now, here and now, be here now, and so forth. Pick up the breath now, the natural flowing breath, but these are sensations that come about wherever you've located your attention. Perhaps you've discovered that the abdomen is best for you or the nose. Now with a naturally flowing breath, not controlling it, but simply allowing it to establish its own rhythm or even lack of rhythm. And each breath, each breath sensation is happening right here, right now. We're learning how to be in the present moment. To begin with, quite simply, with an in-breath and an out-breath. In this aspect of practice, we're giving exclusive attention to the breathing, and I think it would be a good idea that we all start together. Just practicing breath awareness. giving full care and attention to each in-breath, full care and attention to each out-breath, and allowing all that is other than the breath, sounds and thoughts, moods, images, the condition of the body, allow that all to just happen as well. We're not trying to control anything. Thoughts come and go, let them. But what we're featuring, giving special attention to, is that in the midst of our full experience of being alive right now, we're giving full attention to the breathing.
taking it one breath at a time. Not the idea of the breath or picture of it, but just those sensations. Being with those sensations as they emerge in consciousness, operate, and then fall away, and if there's a pause, resting in the pause and receiving the out-breath. And so it goes, breathing in and breathing out. We're taking each breath as it comes and as it goes, and from time to time, as we all know, attention slips off the breathing. We find ourselves caught up somewhere. Even preoccupied with a thought or a memory, something unfinished, some unfinished business from the week, be anything really. As soon as you notice that, in fact, you're no longer with the breathing, very gently and without blame, without turning it into a problem, just ease back to the breath and do that as many times as is necessary. How we come back when we're distracted is very, very important. If you pull the mind back as if it's made a mistake, is faulty in some way, it's accompanied by a certain tension or judgmental quality, 
the practice can become rather dreary. So, understanding that it's the nature of the mind to become distracted, that's part of why we're doing the tr this training. Nothing wrong with it. All minds are like that to begin with. And since we may have to come back many times over the next seven days, It's very important that the coming back is done with a light heart, with ease. And without judging. However, the mind has a mind of its own. And if the mind does start judging, just hear it as thoughts, that's all. Come back.
Please check to see if you're with the breathing at this moment. Not. Disengage from where you are and just ease back to the in-breath, to the out-breath.
In a few moments, you'll hear the sound of the bell. Listen to it carefully until the sound disappears. And don't leave mindfulness here in the hall. Bring it into whatever remains of the evening. Perhaps having a drink, washing up a bit. Readying yourself for bed and going to sleep. See if you can do that a little bit more slowly than usual. We have the time. Mainly wakefully, stay awake. Without strain, don't make it into another achievement that you have to accomplish. Even the smallest activities, just as you untie your shoes or brush your teeth, just know that you're doing it. Give your attention to that. Many of you are very, very new to intensive practice, so I think it's important you get a good night's rest. Some of us have traveled some distance. But especially for those of you who have been practicing for a while, and you don't feel tired, and you've done retreats before and feel quite at home. Feel free to sit a bit longer or to come back into the hall after a drink and sit until you feel that it's the right time to go to sleep. For most of us, I think it'd be a good idea if we all get a good, a good rest and then begin to practice together tomorrow morning once again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.